Friends, welcome back to the Rob Mana Show. We've got a great one this week. Their working title is the GOP can make Congress work for Americans. We're in a lame duck session of the Congress right now, and a lot of important issues are being discussed, or really they're not. That's the problem. My special guest today is the most constitutional member of the U.S. House. That's my opinion. He does what our elected federal representatives are supposed to do, and that's defend liberty. He accomplishes his mission by various means, all of which are to include holding our elected officials and the unelected government accountable. They don't like him, and you know what? Any swamp creature shouldn't because this man is in their face every single day calling them out and holding them accountable in committee and on the floor of the House and through his legislation. He also lives what he protects in liberty. Congressman Thomas Massey of Kentucky's 4th District is the most free American in Congress because he and his family live out their freedoms like the Second Amendment and using innovative ideas and methods that they've come up with to have a home that produces its own needs like power and water. Congressman Massey, welcome to the Rob Manus Show. Hey, Rob, thanks for having me on. Yeah, you know, living off the grid and being self-sustaining in terms of food and energy gives me sort of the confidence to come up here and tell these folks like it is. And, you know, I've had to tell the president of the United States, who's threatened me before, uh, hey, if the worst thing that happens to me is I have to go back to my farm and live with my family and be self-sustaining, I'm okay with that. So... Uh, <laughs> Absolutely right. He, he not only threatened you, though, he put a primary opponent up against you and all the sharks threw their money in the water. And then you kicked his butt, if I remember correctly. Yeah, we got we got 81 percent in that primary. We did OK with somebody yeah. saying I should be thrown out of the party. Uh, and then I got 75 percent in the last one. So I think we're going to be OK because, yeah. you know, even though. Uh, my constituents don't always agree with me. You can't, you can't please everybody all of the time. Even the ones who disagree with me know that I'm principled and I'm reading the bills and I'm making an informed decision up here. Well, you know, part of that's politics. If you are making the president of the United States of your own party so bad that he or she wants to primary you and then does, then you're doing a good job, in my opinion, because the people that are in the House of Representatives are supposed to do things like that uh, and push back when uh, liberty is under threat. And, and that seems to happen every day. And, uh, that, that, that brings up, in my mind, the first thing I really wanted to talk to you about today and, uh, uh, and the whole reason I was able to convince your staff to let you come on the show, and that is the, the military COVID-19 vaccine mandate uh, uh, and the uh, National Defense authorization act process that enabled you all to get that uh done away with specifically yeah. right uh, yes so, so so first of all why why did you do that but let me add in transparency i'm on the board of advisors for a group called uh, stand against racism and radicalism in the services in the armed services at stars.us folks and on behalf of Lieutenant General Bishop, the chairman of that organization, we want to thank you and your staff for getting that done uh, because we've been working on it for uh, about a year and a half now, I think, yep. maybe a little less than that, uh, with folks in Congress and your staff. And you are one of those people that we wanted to thank uh, personally. And I do thank you for that. Well, thank you. Look, the way you get something done up here is you marshal public support for it. And that's what you guys have done. Uh, 
I introduced that bill, as you, as you rightfully pointed out, 18 months ago to end the military vaccine mandate in June of 2021, actually two months before Secretary Austin issued the vaccine mandate because whistleblowers within the military uh, who were well within their rights were telling me that even though there was no vaccine mandate, the paperwork was being pushed to uh, up and down the chain of command to start putting that in place. And so I introduced that bill. We got 92 co-sponsors on that bill to defund the military vaccine mandate. When the NDAA passes, it won't have my name on the legislation. And, and it is watered down a little bit from the mm -hmm. language in my bill, but it is the distillation of that effort of getting 92 co-sponsors of people calling their congressmen of military spouses and members of the military who were being punished uh, for calling their congressmen and, and getting them to co-sponsor this bill. That is ultimately what caused this to be in the NDAA. And so thank you all for that. We, we need to go further. Look, yeah. this, this, um, the end of the military vaccine mandate doesn't reinstate those who've been punished. It doesn't fix their records for forever. They're going to have things on their records where they refuse to take the, the uh, vaccine and where they applied for religious exemptions, many of which were just denied without proper review. By the way, my attorney in the Massey v. Pelosi case on the, the masks in the house, yes. he's the same attorney who got the, the injunction against the Air Force, which was the first injunction against the military on the vaccine mandate. Uh, he got that injunction, but he began with some defendants or some plaintiffs, I'm sorry, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, mm -hmm. and then got a, a class that extended to the entire Air Force. So we've been fighting them in the courts, we've been fighting them in the legislative branch, and uh, we're winning. Well, I'm so thankful as a retired military member, uh, and three of my four sons have all served in the military, one's still in the Air Force Reserves, and, and I was Air Force, my dad was Air Force. Uh, Give, a, give the crowd, uh, the audience, just a couple of the specifics that constituents and people that were concerned were talking to you about that, that said, you know, that made you go, no doubt about it, we've got to end this, we've yeah. got to make sure it doesn't happen. Uh, what were the things they were telling you? I mean, one of the yeah. things I heard from that, I think it was the Wright-Patterson case that you just referred to, is that the Secretary of the Air Force at their, uh, their annual meeting with all the general officers is called Corona folks uh, kicked all the staff out and told uh, a whistleblower in one of the court cases told the court that the secretary of the air force personally said there will be no religious exemptions uh for the COVID 19 vaccine which is just in my mind as somebody that has risked his life his kids have risked their lives my dad my brother uh going back a long time in this country for the constitution of the united states to have that happen and and not be held accountable is really atrocious, but there are other things yeah. really that hit closer to home, weren't there? Oh, absolutely. And it starts before the vaccine mandate. There was sort of a de facto mandate due to the punishment of military members. And I had constituents, like you said, coming to me. I did a round table where I had about a dozen members uh, from all branches of the military on a, a conference call with a, at least uh, half a dozen members of the press, of the media, because people at first were denying this was happening. They were being put in substandard housing, in some cases, tents, like at the military academies. They weren't allowed to, to live with the, with the rest of the folks. 
they were being denied training opportunities. They were being uh, grounded if they were pilots. This was all before there was a mandate. So yeah. we had disparate treatment that was occurring. I brought that to light. Then, as you pointed out, when the mandate went into effect, they, they are required by law, uh, and I would say by ethics, but also by law, uh, to consider religious exemptions. And they were summarily just dismissing them, maybe five, 10, 15 minutes of consideration and issuing form letters. Now, the law requires that each individual case be uh, considered and the merits of each individual case, which they were clearly not doing. And mm -hmm. um, so we got reports from the military of that happening. The saddest stories are people that have 19 years and eight months of service who, you know, four more months to get the, the retirement that they had worked two decades for. They've yeah. sacrificed, been away from their families. Their family's been stationed all over the world. And uh, at the very end, they were going to have to give all of that up in order to, to maintain their bodily integrity. Yeah. And uh, those are the saddest cases. And what's sad is what we're doing now doesn't go far enough. Like I said, it doesn't fix some of those separations. And in fact, mm -hmm. this the NDAA says that they have 30 days to implement this. And I expect in the course of those 30 days, they're still gonna proceed with separations, uh, which is shameful. Oh yeah, I, I, I interviewed just last week uh, representatives of a, uh, of a man in the United States Army that was in the medical retirement process at 19 years and seven months mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and had two temporary medical exemptions, had a chief of, of vascular surgery U.S. Army doctor say he should be medically exempt and his young captain company commander uh, is trying to get him kicked out on a punishment discharge, basically, uh, and other than honorable discharge, based on uh, disobeying an order, even though he's he's got well-documented cases of a medical exemption request that he should be getting, uh, you know, so, and I also interviewed four U.S. Coast Guard Academy cadets a few weeks ago that uh, were just phenomenal. If you get a chance to ever talk to them, and you may have uh, the, of the seven, four of the seven that were called on a Thursday night and said, Friday afternoon, you have to be off campus and we're not giving you any money. You're out, you're mm -hmm. done. Uh, you know, so, uh, I hope there's a good solid plan to get that. You know, you mentioned your, you know, the legislation is not as strong as we would like. Uh, uh, I hope there's a good solid plan to get those folks made whole and give them an the opportunity to serve again if they want, or at least to, uh, to restore their back pay uh, and make sure that they have honorable records going forward here. Yeah, and I, and I know there's some people watching this uh, show saying, well, you sign up for the military and you sign up for all these injections and you shouldn't be fighting this. But listen, there are protections that are in place that were ignored. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, you know, from the anthrax vaccine debacle, uh, they they put in place a rule that it has to be FDA approved. Well, the folks who were forced to get this vaccine did not receive an FDA approved vaccine. The military was not giving those doses. And it's a legal distinction, sure, but that's the whole point. It's a legal distinction. And with, with FDA approval versus emergency use, there's a whole different category of protection, legal protections that kick in and guarantees from the FDA that weren't there. So. The 
the military didn't hold up their side of the bargain on this. They were not following yeah. rules. They were violating rules. By the way, the CDC was lying about the efficacy of it. I have mm -hmm. them on audio phone calls with me because uh, I called them up early. I said, you're misrepresenting the Pfizer trial data. This is not efficacious. You, the data does not show that it's efficacious for those who've had prior infections, which is yeah. a whole nother debacle. And one of the things that I heard, Rob, was, uh, well, George Washington inoculated the Continental Army for smallpox. I went and looked at those orders. He said for the people who haven't had smallpox, right? Mm -hmm. At least yeah. he understood natural immunity. And by the way, so COVID isn't smallpox. <laughs> that, well, no, he, he was losing 10% 10 per, 10 of his combat force in right. a war, during a war. So, I mean, there were greatly different drivers uh behind that effort and i watched your response to the part about uh about the folks that have had the infection you know they have the antibodies well gosh if even george washington back in the day can figure that out without the science that we have today what is wrong with these people you yeah. know and for the orders following folks out there look i i have a yellow department of defense immunization uh, document that goes all the way back to my birth because I was an Air Force kid too and I served 33 years so all of my inoculations are are documented in yellow pamphlets from the DOD and I took every kind of vaccine there was including the anthrax one which turned out to be illegal uh, an illegal order uh, but you folks know that you're trained to question what you think is an unlawful order and that's what we have here and that's why that legal distinction is important and the young men and women that are stepping up uh, to question that order are really american heroes yeah and it, uh, by the way don't underestimate or undervalue what a victory this is because yeah. probably the next shoe to drop was going to be some kind of booster mandate and we know that your chance of myocarditis goes up with every one of these shots that you get in sequence. And there are a lot of people who don't have a reaction to the first shot. It's the second shot or the third shot where yeah. their body is overwhelmed. Uh, and so we've prevented that. They're, now, legally, if you read this thing, could, could the Secretary of Defense go in and do another mandate tomorrow? He could, yeah. but it's going to be politically almost impossible for him to do that. And the uproar, if he did, would be tremendous. I hope, so. I hope you're right, sir. But we see some crazy stuff uh, uh, <laughs> happening in the world, and especially in this country today. That leads me to my next question. It's still related to the NDAA, but uh, here's a, I, I'm just going to ask a frank question. Has the United States Congress voted to put the United States at war with Russia? Well, you know, the international rules of war uh, w would have us kind of in that category already. We are co-combatants by merely providing aid and comfort to mm -hmm. one of the parties. And uh, this, you know, if we were in the Middle East and we found a group that was supporting Al Qaeda, we would treat them like Al Qaeda. Yeah. Uh, and so you need to understand we are walking a fine line that we probably by international rules already crossed. Uh, so with that said, you know, there's, there are also these NATO agreements. If I could have a chance to clear that up, everybody sure. talks about article five of NATO and how there's this commitment to come to the aid 
of, of a co-signer of the NATO treaty. Well, and, and we almost went there when that missile landed in Poland. Yes. And there was, you know, I believe there was a full day when Zelensky knew that it was his missile and he was still advocating for uh, invocation of, of NATO involvement because of that missile. That's problematic. Yeah. But back to the NATO treaty, uh, a lot of people have not read it. In fact, or maybe they've read Article 5, but they haven't read the rest of the articles. Article 11 says that all of the terms of the treaty have to be implemented uh, congruent with the constitutions of the member parties to the treaty. And for the United States, that means Congress has to vote before we commit an act of war. That's right. They do. Uh, and and I, I'm sure you don't know this, but uh, my audience remembers that I was the my primary job on the Joint Staff in the Pentagon in the early 2000s was to, uh, to supervise uh, the NATO nuclear command and control system and make sure that it operated effectively, run exercises uh, over in Europe and those kind of things. So I'm very familiar with the treaty, had all kinds of courses around it, but it's surprising that the number of people that hold offices where you sit have no clue what the hell it is and, and what you just said about what you just said is that you have to vote. And that's yeah. why I asked the question in the first place, sir, is that, is that uh, I mean, it's just being reported in the last uh, four or five days, and now we have confirmation of it, that Americans are on the ground in Ukraine. And we are not at war constitutionally uh, by, uh, by vote of the United States House of Representatives at war, are we? And the problem when you put boots on the ground there is you get into this legal situation where obviously you don't want a soldier in a situation where they can't defend themselves. Yeah. So when, and, and when any of our soldiers are attacked or any American for that matter, sovereign American, uh, I feel like we're obligated to respond. But so I worry that they're putting people in those places and um, trying to obligate us to further engagement if something happens to them. We, we saw this in Iraq. Uh, we had, you know, long after we should have been out of there, we have people there. And after Soleimani was killed in Iraq, that was an Iranian, there was a, a retaliation of sorts on a base of the soldiers there. And we had a vote here in Congress. I was one of three Republicans. This is another time where I got yelled at. Well, not quite yelled at, but threatened at that point yeah. by a Republican president if I voted for a bill that merely said, before you go to war or commit an act of war on Iran soil, that you have to come to Congress for a vote. That, that resolution was constitutionally redundant. It wasn't even necessary, but if it's on the floor, I have to vote for it because it's just a restatement of the Constitution. Yeah. And uh, there's a question of, well, does the president have the authority to attack a country like Iran if our soldiers are attacked? But you just got to go back to the Constitution. If there's an immediate response you can make to protect them, you know, he can make that. But when you when you sit around and study the situation, there has to be if Congress can meet and vote, which they always can before you go to war. If you try to skip that st step, um, mm -hmm. you're violating the Constitution. So anyways, we've had this come up before. We had boots on the ground uh, clandestinely in Syria, which uh, 
you know, the, according to the New York Times, I have to add that part every time because uh, I don't want to be, betray anything that I know by virtue of being in Congress. But according to the New York Times, we're spending a billion dollars a year in Syria on covert operations yeah. in a civil war. And that was a proxy war with Russia as well. And, and the even more dangerous part, though, about the Ukraine is is the exact scenario that happened in Poland when the Ukrainian missiles, uh, air defense missiles, fell on Poland and killed those two uh, two Polish citizens. Uh, we we now have Americans uh, uh, inside Ukraine, and and let me tell you, uh, Zelensky is fighting for the life of his country, and I and I don't blame anybody for fighting for the life of their country and their own freedom, if you can call it that. I'm not quite convinced that they're fighting for uh, a free country, a free Ukraine at this point, based on some of the things I've seen. But the missiles are flying to defend uh, against the Russian uh, uh, armed forces and air forces especially. And all it takes is one missile to drop on an American and kill him. And if we're not calm, and make sure we look at the situation uh, and we could find ourselves in more, much, much more than just a proxy war. Well, let me tell you one American who should be on the ground in Ukraine who's not. That's an inspector general inspecting these weapons shipments and the custody of the weapons and the money that's gone over there and auditing the bank accounts. We had a special inspector general for Afghan reconstruction mm -hmm. in Afghanistan, and that was John Sopko, and he uncovered all kinds of waste, fraud, and abuse. And um, we need somebody like John Sopko in Ukraine who, if even if you agree that the money should go over there and that we should aid Ukraine, hopefully, I would hope that you would agree that you want to make sure it's going where you think it's going. And you can only do that by having somebody over there who has a right to go virtually anywhere to inspect these things. You're absolutely right. So that was not in the NDAA. I have not had a chance to review the entire bill yet. I thought that there was an effort to get an IG for Ukraine into that. <laughs> there may be. If there is, that'd be great. Uh, I am not aware of that. I know there have been efforts. Uh, it must be just hopefulness on my part. Uh, well, you could be I agree right. with you. I don't know. I agree. I agree with you. There, by the way, <laughs> the the reading exercise here is is going to be insane for me in the next few days because they are uh, we, we're passing not just an NDAA, but which we had an NDAA the, that was thousands of pages long in, mm -hmm. in previous years, but we've also got this omnibus bill, and they're adding pages and pages to hit of things that are unrelated to the spending bill. So we've got two of these giant bills coming up with once. Both well, you of did, that's a great segue. That was my next yeah. uh, set of questions was about the omnibus and the lame duck session. Uh, I, I saw one of your tweets yesterday uh, and, and uh, you're right on the money. I mean, these guys, they, they should, they, uh, the Democrats control both houses of Congress. They were supposed to have these bills in when? What was the due Se date of September this? 30th, yeah. So there was plenty of time to vote on this uh, before the lame duck session, right? Yeah, and they've, they've given up the high ground. They've done two CRs to punt this into the lame duck session. Now that we know that they're not in the majority, Republicans in the Senate should have great incentive, greater incentive than even before, not to... Uh, agree to tie our hands for the first nine months of 2023. Here's what I'm talking about, Rob. The, the fiscal year for the government runs from October 1st to September 30th. Right. And if, if 
10 Republicans in the Senate go with Chuck Schumer on this omnibus bill, they will tie our hands in the House for the first nine months of 2023. That's that's almost half of our majority that, wow. that you know, the, for the two yeah. years that's coming up, our two year majority that we know we'll have in the House. So I would I mean, I would hope that 10 of them wouldn't do that, but I suspect that 10 of them have already caved and they've appointed a negotiator to negotiate their surrender. Um, yeah, and, and one, of the, one of the things that gets thrown in the citizens' faces when we object, because I object to that, I object to continue resolutions in general. Uh, I think they're bad for the country. They're bad for the national defense, uh, yeah. especially for, from where I come from and my background. Uh, but but uh, but one of the is there a shorter term solution uh, that could be used because these ten Republicans, you know, whatever they are, mm -hmm. uh, I know them too, uh, and I could probably sit down and write a list out <laughs> of of the ones that are, that might have caved already, but. But they don't really have to cave. They always throw the political thing. Well, we can't shut the government down, blah, blah, blah. You know, it'll hurt us politically. Uh, but isn't there a, another solution out there yeah. for this? Absolutely. Watch the rest of this interview on Red Voice Media Premium using the link below. Completely uncensored and ad-free. Not a member yet? Try it for $1.